Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to Second Captains at the Irish Times. If you were listening to the show on Monday, you'd have heard us asking Dennis Hickey how much of a role good luck had to play in Ireland's Six Nations win. He made the point that we may have had a few lucky breaks, but that doesn't mean that we were a lucky team. And the stats appear to back Dennis Hickey up here. Not only did we score the most tries and concede the least, but the more recent statistics have poured out in the last couple of days, confirming that we led the way in the scrum, 89%. Tackle success, 88%. Line out, 93%. And Ken's favourite, the rooking statistics. Only, 96% success on, rate, Ken. We only uh, made a mess of 4% of the rooks, which <laughs> a, is, a lot less than I've got the to other say, teams. pretty good. Yeah. Listen, I love the sound of those numbers. The rook is when the ball is, is there and the two sides are kind of trying to We're get We're not the here ball. to explain the rules of rugby, Ken. Just rooking success is good. 96%, that's Ken. That's all you need to in know. Any, in any field, 96% is pretty good. Andy McGeady is going to talk to us about this angle, I guess, of sports coverage these days. He attended a conference in Boston, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, late last month uh, and early March. Was quite blown away by some of the things they were talking about there, so we'll chat to him. A yeah, bit it's, Sloan, the, it's MIT Sloan, basically this big... Um, it's been going since 2006, um, a gathering of uh, the most brilliant minds in sports analytics, mm. um, which, yeah, I guess was, was running for three it, days. Just yeah, and this, this angle is taking up more and more of a role in how we consume sports. Mm. Uh, some people are turned off immediately by the idea of any sort of statistical analysis. Some people are maybe a little, well, I'm being judgmental here, maybe a little over the top in uh, analysing every last detail and thinking that they all count. But I think there's definitely a role if it's used in the right way. Yeah, and there is nearly a, a generation gap, uh, sort of a culture being developed there where there are people who will instinctively hear the words uh stats and say right well that's for people who don't know the game mm. you know they don't know the game so mm. you can watch anything you can you that you can see with the naked eye you just follow your gut here we go that's what you, Murph having another pop at Tony Murphy he did this last week he said there's a generation gap what was it last week there's a generation gap over Gaelic football as Gaelic a sport football. as a sport generally now it's statistics yeah well yeah. Tony if you're listening I can only apologise on your son's behalf Listen, what can I say he's a, generation he's a gut guy Tony Murphy is a gut guy <laughs> he goes with what he takes yeah. what he feels he looks into his heart, and whatever he sees there, that's what he goes with. What Tony Murphy would have liked then was seeing the body language of David Moyes last night. Yeah. That'd be Tony. Oh, yeah. David Moyes running off the field at halftime. Although I don't know. Huh? Running 
After a 2 0 lead, running back to the dressing room, getting the chalkboard together, that would be statistical, I guess, but whatever he was doing at halftime, he wanted to get in there. He knew he could mastermind this recovery from a 3 0 deficit, 2 0 deficit. Uh, yeah, and, and so he did. And uh, credit to David Moyes. Is running, though, is running good body yeah. language for an important man? Well, I think um, on in yeah, this occasion. When you're still quite young and you still want to show that you, you're. Still, a reasonably young manager. Certainly, you'd like. Yeah, he's like, not really that young. He's 50, manager. Yeah. Like you know, when uh, Boris Johnson went on that bike ride, that's basically that was kind of what Moyes was going for. You know that he sh- to show that he's still a virile. It's like it's the, it's the Putin, Putin, thing. Putin, thing, yeah. Putin exactly. Much better on, example on horseback. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Something else we mentioned briefly on the show on Monday, Murph, was the rise of Ulster football, mm. in particular Derry. Yeah, uh, and I think it, he, it, it, they're a team that have surprised a lot of people with how well they've played so far this year. Uh, they came up last year with West Mead. A lot of people were looking at that. Well, during last year's league, everyone was like, well, these are definitively the top eight teams in the country. Whoever goes down this year will come straight back up and the teams that uh, got relegated or that got promoted from Division 2 last year were just going to go straight back down. Now, for West Mead, unfortunately, it's been a very, very long spring. But Derry have been really, really good. I mean, it's not just on the back of uh, the win against Dublin last weekend. Uh, you know they've had some really really good results away from home as well. Kerry lost to Cork by a point. They've they've been very very good, and it's, it's part of the sort of a more general trend as I was mentioning on Monday. Uh, just how good the Ulster teams have been looking. Uh, so we're going to talk to Oshin McConville a little later on. All right, Andy McGeady has just popped into the studio. Andy, thanks for coming into us. Thanks very much. I want to ask you first of all about the initially immediately after the Six Nations success it was the line was trotted out that Ireland had scored the most tries and conceded the fewest since then some slightly more detailed stats have come out about the and a lot of people would have seen this being thrown around the top success rate in the scrum with 89% success rate there tackle 88% line out 93% and 96% in the rook these are the kind of stats that I guess mightn't have existed or certainly we wouldn't have heard about them two, three, four years ago. Uh, is this proof that stats have gone mainstream now? I think we're getting there. And it's uh, in the European and Irish context, It's uh, I think it's still the start of a journey. You're right, the stats that were trotted out, I think it, we're helped by that because sponsors are getting involved with tournaments like the Six Nations. You see Accenture branding stats. And they're making sure that they want, they want they, their name next to data because they're trying to sell that in a business context as well. Mm. Look what we can analyse, look what we can track, and look what we can do for your business. But in terms of sport, uh, we in Ireland and the UK, I think we're getting used to stats on our screens now. We're getting used to you know, looking back over a tournament and seeing what teams actually did uh, after the, I suppose, the, the melee of the matches actually passed. And when you look back to last year's Six Nations, which went so badly, I think it was notable that even though it is a surface stat, that Ireland went from worst in line-out to best, mm. um, including Rory Best and the travails he went through, including going over to the Lions Tour. But it just shows you that things can be turned round in a different environment, different coach, and with different players in place, like someone like Devon Toner being brought in there. Up until relatively recently, you hear a lot about a player's unseen work, and I'm sure that there is work that is done by these players that certainly the average supporter and a lot of us watching in wouldn't necessarily know but is the idea now that you can actually quantify pretty much everything that you should be able to uh, if you look at all the stats available as a coach or as a statistician or whatever it might be you can decide exactly how well each person played based on their statistics I think there's a difference between the statistics that the guys have in house and the stuff which is released to the public and the media and that that's a big gap which I think a lot of people including me 
building relationships with as many people that can give me data as possible, uh, trying to get it out there. Describe the gap. Okay, so the gap is right now um, we get the pundits on TV typically talking about the unseen work that a player does, like let's say a Jamie Heaslip or a Peter O'Mahony. Now the guys inside the camp at both club and international level, and this is across the board, this isn't unique to Ireland, um, they are going down through the tape and breaking down how many rooks this player got involved in. Was he one of the first three players getting involved in their own rook or the opponent's rook, which can be hugely effective if you're disrupting their effort. And they're putting numbers against these. And now some companies are starting to track these. And because companies are getting involved, that's very valuable to people like me and other people in the media and in other sports. This is almost a universalist, not just rugby. When you can release that data, then you can compare players, compare teams on a level playing field because an analyst working for Leinster, say, might grade things slightly differently than a guy working for Saracens. So if you have a consistent approach, then people in the media can look at players, compare them, see, you know, have a bit of a black and white view about things, but also people in clubs they'll then sign contracts with data providers who can give them this kind of analysis because if it's done right, it can save them work. Yeah. Would coaches prefer the media in general not to have the same, all the same stats? Is there, are there certain things that ideally they would prefer to keep in-house, do you think? Yes, but I think you're always going to have that. And I think the battle should change from have we got the data to how do we analyse it? And that's where they're moving towards in, in the States. I think that baseball is a huge example here. It's obviously a different sport. It's a much more one-on-one contest in almost every facet of the game. But their great unknown has been fielding data. So once the ball gets hit, what happens to it? Is the fielder actually getting to the right place in the right time? Is he doing that better than the average fielder? And what they're doing now in baseball is they're, they're gathering that data centrally, huge troves of it. And what they're then doing is the battle will be for the analysts and the teams to make the best sense of that. And that's where the competitive advantage will be. Yeah, you did spend time in Boston, as I said, over a few days there. Was that the standout uh, statistic or the standout uh, storyline that you took from it? Was there anything in particular that you that really opened your eyes that you hadn't even thought about with regards to the use of statistics in sport? This year, that certainly was the standout one. It, it blew people's minds. You're looking at seven terabyte, terabytes of data, 20,000 captures per second of everything happening on the field, which is it's kind of incredible to think about. It. Um, there's a story out in The Economist that one unnamed baseball team has spent half a million dollars on a Cray supercomputer to crunch through this data. This is light years ahead of anything else that, that I've seen. Um, but it can be much more simple, the things that are looked into at a conference like that. Um, sleep research, for example. And it was a Dr. Charles uh, Seisler from Harvard who'd done some work with NBA teams. I think they were, he was brought in originally by the Boston Celtics, obviously the, the local team, because NBA teams spend a huge amount of time on the road and they're going from time zone to time zone and sometimes they're playing what they call back-to-backs, which is you, you wake up in one city, play a game, then you go to the next mm. city and the very next day you're playing a game. And that can really mess with you. And it's something which I know that rugby teams have looked into. They use sleep and quality of sleep and length of sleep as a wellness marker. It's happening in the Premiership in England as well. So it's good to know that you know we're, we're not behind the curve on this at this part of the world. But it's fascinating to me that in a sport where quality of sleep can have such a, um, an impact on your reaction time in such a fast-paced game like basketball, and they hadn't really looked at this before. Does quality of sleep just mean getting a good, solid whatever it might be, seven hours a night, or are we talking about everybody, every sports person needs a half-hour nap during the day to recharge the batteries? 
what the professor had said at the at the talk was quite interesting. He said that if you can get your eight hours in one chunk, great. Two chunks, fine. As soon as you get into spreading that out into three chunks or more, then you're not getting that core of sleep that the body actually needs to to recharge both physically and mentally. And I think the mental aspect was something that struck a chord in the room um, when you think of the the attendees that are there, this sort of this audience full of power nerds who probably are up half the night doing whatever they want to do. I think that's a bit different though from, from talking about data. I mean, that's like science. It's like it's more, I would say, comparable to nutrition, you know, sort of people figuring out what the right things to eat are or whatever. But I wondered when, when you're at this Sloan conference, what the general mood is. Is there a sort of triumphalist mood of, uh, you know, we are the vanguard. Uh, we're, the world pretty much has to bow down to us now because we're, uh, we're the people who are going to rule the 21st century. The nerds rule all. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, for instance, Nate Silver, I get this, I do get this impression from him a little bit that he's quite, uh, he's pretty excited about how, uh, how much at the cutting edge, you know, he is. Uh, I mean, this, this Can new... You just explain who Nate Silver is. Nate Silver is, is um, essentially, well, he, I, I guess he's a statistician, but he's now one of the biggest... Um, uh, stars yeah, in American media. He, he came media. through sports and he made his name in baseball originally, did, didn't he? Yeah, and, and then um, branched out, moved up in the world. I think, he, I think he spent a couple of years working for KPMG or something in Hayes. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, very interesting guy. Um, and, and is now setting up a new, uh, it's kind of a new journalistic venture and he's hiring at the moment. And, and I, I was reading some stuff he was saying about hiring. It's quite interesting. He was saying, uh, basically, I've got an XY axis. Uh, and the x-axis runs from quantitative to qualitative. The y-axis uh, runs downwards from, uh, I think, with systematic down to sort of ad hoc. Um, and I'll only hire people whose work I think is in that top left quadrant, i.e. systematic, quantitative. Uh, the bottom right quadrant, that's the crap quadrant, he says, i.e. ad hoc and qualitative. You know, someone who just, uh, and he says, this is where you can put most opinion columnists in America. Yeah, like for, in this for an crap quadrant, people who basically go, well, you know, uh, funny thing happened to me uh, on my way to work, or you know, the taxi driver told me that, uh, and then you know, we'll knock out going. He's like, Phew. yeah, he hates the idea of people taking one incident that might have happened to them in that taxi, mm. and then using that to actually say to qualify their theory on be it sports or politics or economics, whatever. And for a guy who is. Um, he, I mean, he's, he's a huge name now, and the 538, I mean, that's going to be now, I suppose, the, the stats nerd equivalent of Grantland. That's mm. the new ESPN venture, and indeed, the, I think it, it goes through, up through the same tree in terms of how they're controlling this. But for a guy who preaches about unbiased, he is certainly not biased about his, uh, you know, he, he hates talking heads yeah. in anything. And I think there's, I think that's a little harsh. Yeah. That's my personal opinion because I think there's, especially on television, I mean, half of television is entertainment. Yeah. It's not simply knowledge. We can read books. We sit back. We want to be entertained of an evening. And if that's if that's George Hook or if that's a political person in the States or whoever else. Yeah, if a journalist can't take an anecdote and use it in an, in an article to illustrate a point. Ken, I think, yeah, maybe one or two of your, I don't know. Look, all I'm saying is right, I, don't think, like I don't expect <laughs> to get a job at 538, right? Yeah. That this isn't the place for, you know, smart takes or whatever. But there is something about human beings that... Often, a lot of human beings find other human beings appealing. You know, they, they want to listen to what they have to say, even if maybe they're talking a, a lot of nonsense. You know, that, that sort of... Uh, we, enjoy, I think, we enjoy their company. Yeah, I, I think that maybe the anxiety people have when they look at uh, 
the what is the inevitable rise of, of a kind of a data driven understanding of, of what's happening in sport is that people feel it's anti human. It's like, well, you know, you, you said you were talking about twenty thousand captures a second, right? Seven terabytes of data. I mean, how much of uh, what's the maximum possible quantity of data you can squeeze into a human brain? Like, uh, what's the what's the most the human brain can understand here? It's becoming apparent that it's a fractional capacity compared to what you know machine intelligence will soon be capable of understanding. What I'm saying is, this is the rise of the machines. This is this is what people really feel find threatening about this. It's like the sense that we are becoming obsolete kind of meat uh, meat blobs. I think that we still always need someone to tell the story. And that's what you're going to get. Whether that's 538 or whether that, whether that is the talking head, they're telling stories. And that's why we buy newspapers. It's why we read websites. It's why we listen to the radio and podcasts. It's why we watch TV. We want to learn a little, but like sitting around a fire, we want people to tell us stories and to entertain us and to make us feel comfortable. And the big advantage now that we're, we're getting more data released in whatever sport, and be it data or research or whatever, they're telling us that sometimes the stories we've been hearing a long time aren't actually right, that there's another angle to this that we didn't know. Like, I've certainly looked at, for example, the tackle counts of Peter O'Mahony before, wrote a little piece about it, upset a few people in Munster, but that's the way of it. But he does a lot of work on the other side of the ball. Now, when I have the Rook data for his performances for Ireland. He's one of the first opponents, the opponent's rook all the time, and that's a consistent facet of his game. That's something we don't see in the stats on TV. Has the media worked out how to use statistics, how to present all the more detailed stuff that we're getting now to everyone who, like us who wants to read it? No. Really? Not, not yet. Uh, and I think that we know that because when you see the stats being used typically in the media, a lot of them are regurgitated from the the releases sent out by the companies themselves rather than the journalist or someone in-house actually digging a little bit deeper, crossing a couple of things together and coming up with their own interesting data and their own charts. Um, We're a long way from where, for example, the New York Times are, who are superb. Now, they have huge resources and specialists, teams that have guys who are brilliant at graphics, editorial people who are experience with using graphics and data and storytelling and wrapping all that together and producing amazing things, beautiful things actually, not just print on a page because I think what you're getting down to is no one wants to see a table full of stats. Mm. That's not entertaining. Um, If you can see something on the page and you don't think about it but you instantly know, you say, oh oh yeah, I get that, I get that. That's why that's important. I think that's what we need to get to. Is is there an appetite for that in this part of the world? Do Irish sports fans, English sports fans look at things, Ken talked about the sort of human elements, do we look at things in any way differently to how they look at it in America? Are there still any Tim Sherwoods in America? (laughs) There's a few, though less so in baseball, I think, now. I think the baseball revolution is through. The NFL revolution is continuing. I think we're probably closer to ice hockey, where you still have the the people who just, they'll throw it out the window and say, no, you can't can't measure heart is the great line. You know, you can't, you can't, the the ball is a funny shape in American football, so there'll always be randomness. Well, of course there'll be randomness, but you can measure a lot of other stuff and see what it tells you. Yeah, I remember reading a Michael Lewis article in the New York Times a few years ago on Shane Battier, an NBA player. It was entitled The No Stats All-Star. And this was a few years ago, so things have developed in statistics, but the point of it really was that his statistics aren't, aren't mind-blowing, or certainly then they weren't mind-blowing. The measurable stats 
weren't anything that you would consider to be particularly outstanding. And yet every teammate and every coach who played with him said, this guy's amazing. And when he's in our team, we win matches and we don't. Is there is there still room in sport for the unquantifiable like that? Yeah, there certainly is. And it's a thing which, especially in the NBA, they've looked at. Now, it's much easier in the NBA because you've only got five players on a team on a court at any one time. There's a lot fewer moving parts. But looking at combinations, how if I take one player out and introduce another player in, in, in our own team, how does that change things? And that becomes really interesting when you talk about player acquisition. Because when you buy a player, let's say you buy a striker, it isn't just I'm getting his 25 goals. He has to be put into the machine of the team, for want of a bit of a term. And in every sport, I think they're getting better at that. Now, it's not it's not that he's the no-stats all-star. Mm. It's that we didn't know then. You didn't know what? No. One of the points that Lewis was talking about was that one of the things that he did was pass timing the pass correctly to a player in the right position to take the shots. That, there's not actually a stat for timing of pass. It's just something that he has an essential understanding of when exactly to release the ball to the more obviously talented player who can then drain the shot. Do you think that those kind of things, ultimately that you can measure, the more advanced it gets, the more you can actually measure along those lines? Well, they are doing it. I, yeah. I worry where this is going to end. I mean, you know, on what, at what point will coaches stop encroaching on the autonomy of their players? I mean, they're measuring every single thing that they do um, in the hope of getting more and more detailed understanding, in the hope of being able to enforce more and more detailed instructions about what, what they do. I mean, at the moment, you're only using cameras to measure where they move and, and but the, the actions players. that they take. But the what, about, pl- yeah, what, what, what happens when, you, when you know, 10 years' time when you're actually scanning their brains as they're playing? <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely serious. Yeah, no, but surely the good players and the top players are the guys who will sift through the information they're being given in a game situation and ignore the stuff that they don't think is relevant to them. I don't think even a coach as good as Joe Schmidt, I, I don't know if a player has to has to agree 100% with well, everything. He does if he wants is. to be in the team. Well, yeah, maybe Joe Schmidt's a bad example. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like he likes guys who can carry out his, his detailed um, game plan. But I think there is room for a statistical approach in any sport. And a player can take on board... 90% of it but oh, still I, I think there is definitely I mean I'm just the, I, I have a f- slight feeling of, of apprehension about it probably because I was born in 1979 I'm like uh, all, I, I'm I'm already kind of out of time now I'm, I feel like no this is no this isn't the way things are meant to be players are meant to be able to make their own decisions what happened to human autonomy whereas someone born in 1999 I don't think is going to have any of you've these a, it's just the most obvious thing in the world okay, and you've got a long way to go in your life as a as an angry old man, you're, well, you're remember, too young to, to be like this. I remember a time it's it's happening to people at a younger and younger age. You know, things are moving faster. I remember a time when mobile phones were considered to be grotesque, uh, an affectation. You know, what kind of a you know person would have a mobile phone? You well, know? we remember the time when you didn't have that, yeah. which well, is a fundamental. We, we remember that, and then when they came in, it was like, oh, you know, look at these people with their mobile phones you know that will never catch on who wants who wants a phone in their pocket all the time and then Ken, you know, it sounds like you've got a bit more venting to do we need to let Andy leave the studio at some point here we'll, we'll take this up afterwards Andy McGeady great to have you in thanks so much thanks a lot Shane, Shane Curran with the kick out the 42 year old goalkeeper Curran it out from goal here he comes he topped it he fought it he's 50 yards out from goal what a day for us coming all the mother niggas lame and you know it now when the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam.
1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. See, Andy then just was a little too polite. He was thinking, but too polite to point out that you have even got your old man cardigan on today. Yeah, my tea-stained uh, cardigan. Mm. Uh, it's actually... It, it's it's not it's actually not not even any good for keeping you warm. Yeah, but it's just it's just a little comfort. I mean, it's, for you. it's made of wool, but wool is actually not as good as some of the man-made fabrics these days in in terms of retaining warmth. What about Aaron sweaters? Well, I suppose if you if you if you got enough wool, <laughs> you, if you got enough wool, you're going to keep warm. But I I thought I mean I think that whole thing is there's a lot of interesting things. To think about in that whole debate about statistics, I mean the the fundamental point about it is that this is happening, and there's no there there's no going back. It's happening because it can. It's happening because of the there's the technological capability there to record things that couldn't previously be done. I mean, previously, if you wanted to record a training session, you needed like a, quite a lot of Film expensive group. cinema equipment, yeah. you know, and like uh, huge um, quantities of uh, highly flammable celluloid film. And then it was pretty much impossible to to get to what the bit you wanted to watch. It's, it was just impossible. It was impossible. It wouldn't have been impossible even in the eighties, early nineties. But now it's it's possible to have these huge uh, banks of video data to go to exactly the bit that you want to see. I mean, I'm just giving really simple examples of things that are possible now that weren't possible. Even but 10 also, years ago. it's a coaches. We talked about how the media disseminate the information, but coaches. I'm sure a lot of managers and coaches use the information incorrectly as well. Oh you, yeah, you can see someone like Joe Schmidt. You just know, and it's from the results in the pitch. But even talking to him on TV last night, I, I was really struck when we asked him. Did he have any doubt about his game plan after the England game? And he said, I doubt my game plan all the time mm. because there's so many things that I have to get right with my own team. Then I'm trying to second guess. There's 15 guys in the other team. What are they going to do? What's their game plan? And what are the fluctuations within that? So you can almost visualize Joe Schmidt pouring over all these things and using them as well as can be done because it's, it's, it's never going to be a perfect science. Well, I wondered actually if, if when Joe Schmidt was saying that, and of course we didn't because we didn't have much time, to ask him whether that was a personality trait of his or or kind of a deliberate mm. habit of mind that he applies to his work because it's essentially the sort of scientific method of skepticism you know uh, is this is you know this is what i think but examine my assumptions is this really true a kind of a systematic doubt that you apply to make sure that you don't just lazily start yeah. you know building castles in the air next time again yeah one next of the time. yeah one of the things that you were talking about with Andy there though about um you know the players and this is Basically, effectively, what you were trying to say there was that it was bad news for players. Well, it's um, great news for coaches. Yeah, but it's it's actually great news for players as well because if you're doing your work, you know it it it, it just ensures again that the cream rises to the top, mm. doesn't it? Well, it's a, I mean, it depends. Maybe particular kinds of cream. Matt Letizia would have been an awful statistical player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the goals. Yeah, what, what you're talking these, but the these games is a statistic. These, you know, these the, are games that people history. <laughs> that history. people originally played to have have the crack. Yeah. You know that's that's what that's what, and now it's kind of turned into this uh, arm like a, a, an arms race between coaches, and it's an intellectual exercise for coaches. I don't think pro sports it's is like, fun anymore, though. It's it's fulfilling the, the kind of uh, the role in 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 you know for for a particular type of man who maybe in uh, in days gone by would have been a general in the army. This is now it's it's now like an intellectual exercise on that sort of scale. You know, instead of pl- planning a big battle, it's now you're you're, you're planning a, a game plan. I think rugby is is a really it, it's no surprise that this, that we can see this happening in rugby in Ireland 
because it's the most suitable game yeah. at the at the moment. I mean, it's the it's the one which can be broken down into its. I mean, it's still more more flowing than Baseball most of the American sports, yeah. even than you know American football or anything. But um, it is a little bit more divisible, you know. Yeah. And um, to see someone like Schmidt, I mean, he's you know he's he a coach who is uh, using this stuff intelligently is always going to beat a coach who isn't using Just on the idea of the fun element of maybe it all being too serious and too stats driven that's probably true I think it's it's almost a cliche at this stage when people say the fun has gone out of rugby that it's not what it was maybe even when the current batch the O'Driscoll and Darcy and these guys started up there was maybe still a bit more crack involved whatever that actually means but Stuart Lancaster uh, I read uh, in the last couple of days you notice ritual that especially rugby teams but a lot of sports teams have whereby a new player in the team has to... In fact, the Irish soccer team have it, have to get up and sing a song yeah. or have to um, have a drink ball for them by every other player in the team, all this kind of messing yeah. around. Stuart Lancaster has banned that. What he has in place now is, I think the player gets up and every other squad member says really nice things about the person there. Wow. Something, something, I, could have over, I could have overstated quite what the new method is. He certainly banned that old... Uh, integration method and it's now all about expressing oh no I think what it is is he sorry I've gotten that wrong I think he expresses the pride that he has in getting this jersey and in sharing this moment with all these that players. all sounds a bit um, nauseating yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I don't think you really need to do that I think yeah. Sir Lancaster might have, and again he's been quite successful so it's like well, what a great idea yeah. you know gotten rid of the old scallywags yeah. you used I mean, to I, you know we were saying it, it's, it's, I don't really think that it's taking the fun maybe it is a bit less fun but rugby is professional now it's, it's a job for these players and it's serious and you can get maybe something deeper than fun you can get satisfaction out of uh, out of executing a, a complex game plan everybody does what they're supposed to do and it all comes together for the team and you win a really difficult game and there's really deep satisfaction I imagine in that which beats the sort of sense of oh you know uh, sort of get, get out there and throw the ball around and see what happens you know I, I think it's 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 fine as it, as it kind of goes on as well it will become more and more natural for players that well obviously this is how we do things you know yeah. obviously I go and pour over this playbook and and, and look deeply into this the this young is, players coming in do all that they, they do that because do, yeah. it's just natural like the idea of going and having 10 points which was the previous well obviously that's what we do it's just kind of like well, why would I do yeah, that another one that? of I'm our guests athlete. I, I, why would anyone yeah. want to well, why <laughs> listen, do themselves this makes sense listen if Tony Murphy's still involved with the Milltown Junior Seas he's still going to be picking with his gut right that's I can tell you that <laughs> right now yeah. you can jump the, the stats where the sun does uh, another one Tony's of our guests last night in Second Captain's Live is Shane Lowry and he's got a brand new Irish Times Colin Murph the first uh, article was in there today further proof that Shane Lowry is the most normal and nice person in world sport yeah uh it's it sounds like kind of a cliche or you know he's so down to earth he's so unaffected I mean he yeah, actually he really is. is he really is the uh, exactly the kind of guy that I think people uh, think he is you know that he's just a really unaffected uh, country guy who loves his GA loves his golf um, and the the, the the column to start actually was uh, it started off by talking about how he was in such bad form after around in Dubai at the end of last year that his mother nearly didn't want to come up and talk to him because he was so annoyed and he was in bad form. And he has thought about that a lot over the last few months, talking about, I, I, that's so bad. I oh, feeling guilty that... Uh, that his mother is, okay, was yeah. afraid to come over to, to talk to him. Yeah. That he really did... That bothered him. Uh, and he has to... The, the common basically is just about how he has to sit 
goals that include on the course and off the course. All right, have a read of that. Football, second captain's football is coming up a little bit later on. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you not? I'd like to stay alive for six years. I'd say to you, if I'd not say to you now, I will go down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you showing man? You tired of David Moyes? No. No, you're not. I might have been tired if he'd lost, but now that he's triumphed and is back yeah. I think it's quite interesting again yeah we're going to have we're going to have a little bit of chat not about David Moyes really because you know let's let's give the guy a break but you know what exactly we're going to have a more detailed talk about what just has been going wrong there are different schools of thought about what the problem is what the problem has been um, with his team obviously the team that managed to beat Olympiacos who I don't think played that well last night and have the worst goalkeeper Really, that I've seen in this season. Olympiacos, oh, sorry, Olympiacos yeah, goalkeeper. Yeah. Fortunately, yeah. Manchester United have a, have a much better goalkeeper who made an incredible <laughs> save at one point to to uh, keep a clean sheet. But um, yeah, we're going to have a bit of a chat about that. I think Real Barcelona's this weekend as well. So, oh, yeah. so uh, we may be looking I forward to that. Game that too. Yeah, Bushy McConville is ready to talk about a noticeable trend. I think in the early games in the Allianz League. Not so early this stage as we, we get towards the business end of it. But uh, the question to you is, is Ulster football on the march once again? So noticeable that nobody in Ulster really noticed it. Um, <laughs> we, we, have been, we have been going well. I suppose a, a couple of teams have really you know, started to push on. I think Cavan are a team that sort of have been signalled this couple of years. I think they're a good uh, under-21 win uh, last night. And that has been you know, their building blocks. They've won the last three uh, also on twenty ones and are hoping to kick, hoping to kick on. But I think you know you look at them and you look at Derry in particular, and they're the teams I suppose that have improved. Uh, Tyrone, Donegal are teams that um, have sort of been there now the last couple of years, and I suppose are trying to uh, reinvent themselves in many ways and try and recreate the form that got them to you know the last four over the last uh, number of years. But you know, I don't know if it's really or that much of a resurgence. I'd like to, I'd like to hold off mm. until somebody's actually done something out of the ordinary as far as the championship goes. Yeah. I think you know, apart from Donegal a couple of years ago, we haven't really uh, set the world alight as far as you know championships concerned. So I'd be holding off right now. Derry have have a have a history of, of sort of imploding around, you know, championship time, but you know, they look a different proposition this time around, I think. Derry is an interesting one because I guess growing up, you know, I would have seen uh, always seen Derry as this really strong team. Certainly in the early nineties they were impressive. They haven't uh, nest I don't know what's happened. nineteen ninety eight was the last time they won an Ulster title and playing uh, talent wise, I would imagine their supporters would feel that they should be winning titles at least reasonably regularly, what has actually prevented them from from succeeding championship-wise in the last number of years? Well, this sounds very simplified, but really and truly, uh, club football in Derry is it's competitive, to say the least. Uh, I think they haven't been able to, to recreate that club atmosphere within the county. and I think as a result of that, um, they haven't always had their best players out on the field. I think that's one of the first things because it hasn't been uh, that cool to play with Derry in the last number of years because they would have seen, been seen, I suppose, as a team that sort of had that whole infighting thing. 
uh, and they never really were able to get over that. I think a lot of people thought it'd be different when Damon Cassidy came in. I think he did change things in a way, but still there was that lingering thing in the background. Um, but I think Brian McGaver, who would be recognised as one of the top coaches in the country, uh, at this stage, you know, you, you you talk to players who played under him at Donegal and at club level, and and again at, at Derry, and you know they would feel that he certainly has made a a very positive change. He's got Paddy Talley um, along with him, and I think it just seems like a very very positive camp at the minute. Um, and I think you know with results, with the fact that they are you know in Division One and. If you had asked me at the start of the year who the two teams come down out of Division 1, I would have said Westmead and Derry, to be honest, because I didn't think they'd be able to cut the mustard up there with the big boys. But they certainly have. And, and I think, you know, they have unearthed <coughs> players. Uh, they look like a, not only a decent team, but a decent panel. Because I know they've changed their team over the level. They've probably used the boys. Um, they've started probably upwards of 22, 23 players. So, you know, that's, you have to think that that's very positive for them. I don't know what the situation is with Owen Bradley, but mm. certainly if you added him into that team come championship time, then he should be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not even just uh, a case of us looking at them beating Dublin and then all of a sudden realising, God, these guys are pretty decent. Uh, because they did go down to Kerry and won a tight game that Kerry had actually you know, played reasonably well in. And lost their only loss of the campaign so far was by a point to Cork in Cork. Uh, and that was when Cork were really flying it. So... I mean, it, they have put together a string of really, really good performances. And as you were saying, we've seen this before from Derry, but the idea would be that, that this time around uh, they might actually be able to, to take it into May and June and July. Yeah, well, they'll be hoping, Brian McCabe will certainly be hoping that they can sustain what they, what has, what they have started. I think for the likes of, of Derry, I think you know, making it to a league semi-final would be very, very important for them. Uh, I think there's a lot of teams who who quite openly, you know, can take or leave, you know, whether they win the league, whether they get to the last four. And not only that, but I don't think it's important for some teams. But uh, teams who are trying to make the breakthrough, and you've mentioned all those results. And one result that I would look to, and I suppose a lot of people also would look to, was the first game, which was against Tyrone. They drew against Tyrone, probably should have won the game. But that's a game that down through the years that Derry would have lost. Derry would have lost the game and as a result of that <clears throat> there would have been probably, you know, a little bit of that infighting as we talk about, uh disappointment and that would have reverberated around the county. Certain players wouldn't have been happy because they weren't playing different things like that. But they got a draw against Tyrone. And I think that was a big, big result for them because Tyrone have always had that hoodoo over there. They've always been able to beat them whenever they needed to beat them. And you know, that was a massive result to kick off their league campaign. That would give them a huge amount of confidence. And I suppose when you're, a, I suppose, a manager, you know, he was only he's only really in the second year. When he, when when you're with a manager and he's trying to sell you something, and Derry have changed slightly the way they play football. They've played with Emmett McGuckin on the top of the square. They've changed the role that Mark Lynch has. You know, he's he's basically, you know, he's calling the shots. Um, he's, uh, I suppose, he's a linchpin of that whole forward line. But I think one thing about him is that, you know, he looks fitter, he looks sharper. Uh, he's He sort of typifies Derry football for me because... He's all he's he's sort of always been there or thereabouts. He's always looked as if he could go to the next level, and and he hasn't quite done it. But it looks now as if you know with the players around him that he might be able to kick on and 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 get on to that next level. 
Oshin Tony Gall, it's um we shouldn't forget how impressive they were in winning their All Ireland only a couple of years ago. It was a bad year last year and it was almost it was a bit shocking to see the nature of their defeats, particularly uh, in Ulster against Monaghan when they just, uh, everyone made the point at the time, it seemed like Monaghan just very easily turned the tables on them and made them uncomfortable and did a lot of the things that Donegal do to other teams. It looks like they're taking the league a bit more seriously this year and people are sitting up and taking notice. Are you expecting, are we, do we still talk about Donegal as one of the All-Ireland favourites or already do you consider them a county who had their All-Ireland, had that one amazing year, got everything they could out of the squad and will now be in this sort of second rung of top teams? I would, I think they're still in that top rung. I, I would consider them still in that top rung. I consider them there because I think, you know, what Jim McGuinness has tried to do is he's tried to find four or five players. I've already spoke about this over the last number of years. The one thing that really hurt Donegal last year when they did have those injuries and Let's be honest about it. They didn't have a huge amount of injuries. They just had injuries to important players, the likes of Carl Lacey, who was, who was for them irreplaceable. And I think, you know, when he looked to his bench, I, I watched him last year, in particular uh, when they played Leash, and Leash really had them on the rack that day, and they managed to get to get by. But, you know, I just remember saying, you know, when Jim McGuinness looked around, I think uh, Mark McHugh was injured for that game as well. When he looked around and he looked at his bench, he didn't really have a bit. You know, he didn't have really have any real quality to call on. I think the difference is this year he's looking to maybe find a couple more players. So you can add Ray McHugh, you can uh, add McNeilis, and there's a young fellow, Connor, who's come in at Concord. Hasn't played a hell of a lot of football yet, but I imagine he's going to play a huge role in uh, uh, come championship time. So he might be just, you know, holding him back that little bit. Patrick McBrady hasn't played a huge amount because obviously he'd been involved in Seekers and then again on the 21 football. So he'd probably unearthed maybe another two or three from that on the 21 team that uh, had a very convincing win last night. So, you know, they're there or thereabouts. Didn't play uh, Carlyish from the start last week. So I, I imagine the minor themselves. I was a bit shocked that, that they beat them, though. You know, I think uh, that would be a game that Donegal would have signalled out and said, look, we win this game and then, you know, we're, we're almost there promotion-wise. Because I think that's one of the keys. I think Jim McGuinness obviously, you know, wants to uh, instill a lot of confidence or reinstill a lot of confidence of such a word and, uh, you know, get them back up to Division 1 playing against better teams. But also, I think they need a, a wee shot, of, shot in the arm of confidence before they go into the championship. And I think the only way they're going to do that is through the league. And I think they found out to, to our cost last year, whenever you, I suppose, don't take the league that seriously, that regardless of what anybody says, you know, League form does matter now. It matters in Gaelic football because the better teams are just kicking on, and, and you know they have the panels to to sustain a, a a huge league campaign and then straight into the championship. It doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to phase them. But the weaker teams, you know, who put a lot into the league and don't have that sort of panel, you know, will suffer come championship time. Well, Shane, great to talk to you as always. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. The issue that. Oshin brings up there regarding Derry and part of the reason why they haven't been successful despite having I'd imagine Derry people would feel that they've got as talented footballers as Donegal have or certainly over the last 10-15 years um, would have done they, Certainly Yeah the, the issue about the club being hyper competitive club football in Derry and then having to get that right first of all get all the players wanting to play for their county mm. but also a lot of club footballers 
hate each other. Is that something to do with? No, no. A lot of teams hate each other. There's a serious rivalry there. And this is a universal issue in sport. One of the great triumphs of the, the Spain in recent years is marrying all the different uh, people from very different cultures within Spain. Uh, it's not so much a cultural thing in, in Ireland, but it's, um, it's almost because of that. It's almost that these people are this, almost the same. They live, na- live in neighbouring villages but those villages can have issues with each other and those teams can have issues with each other and you've somehow got to get all that right and have them all playing together and almost pretending they like each other at, yeah. at county level. It's weird. I was kind of thinking about this and Kerry is the most successful uh, team, obviously, in Gaelic football and a lot of their club championships, well, they have a, a county championship and they have a club championship, mm. but you know, the, a lot of their club football is their divisional teams. So they're used to that. All of their club players are used to it. They're, they're used to that marrying together as a sort of as a group within Kerry to play in the county championship. And as a result, maybe that takes the sting out of these club games a lot more in Kerry than it might do yeah. in other counties, you know? Because I, I, I think, in fairness, the point in relation to Derry is that club championships get really, really competitive in counties where there hasn't been a lot of inter-county success. Mm. So the more inter-county success there is... Um, I think the higher a prize it is to play for the county team. I mean, Wicklow is a, 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 you know probably the, the example of an unbelievably ferociously contested county championship. Um, and as a result, the Wicklow senior team has, it has uh, suffered as a result because people don't look on playing for Wicklow in the first round of the National Championship and getting beaten most of the time in the first in, round. I think people who follow Clare football would make a similar point. Yeah. There are a few counties around like that who actually put their clubs up against anyone else's and they're decent but yeah. uh, see that, well see that's it they, they look on if I train really hard for my club and dedicate everything to my club there's a good chance I can win something whereas if I do that for Clare or for Wicklow or Carroll or whoever yeah. what are you going to win effectively maybe there's not much of a much of a much of a carrot there I know it's one club for life all those, those kind of things and there's great pride but I do like the idea in sport of aiming as high as you can if you have that talent if you're a talented club player and uh, maybe I'm being a bit preachy here now that mm. I think about it it's up to anyone to be motivated by whatever they're motivated by but I kind of like the idea that some of those players could actually perform for Wicklow or for Derry yeah. you, can, you, see, you see what happens in Donegal you can actually okay, maybe Wicklow further away than that yeah. but you can go pretty far in championships if yeah you and I think uh, I think in ways the, the seriousness with which club teams are now preparing kind of it kind of negates you know the the argument was well listen I can do nothing until March, relax, have a few pints, enjoy myself, and then, you know, take the club seriously for a couple of months in the summertime. I mean, that's just, that just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, if you're a club team with designs on winning a county championship and going further, mm. you're training, you're into your probably third month of training by now. So, <laughs> you know, if you're doing it for your club, you might as well do it for your county. All right, we're just about wrapping up things today. Well, not today. We'll have second captain's football. The Irish Times coming out a little bit later on. If you want to go to next week's TV show, email us live at secondcaptains.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook for updates on that. Murph, thank you very much. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, thank you, Ken. Kieran, thank you. Thanks for listening. Is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.